morning. My name is Ardalis Crane. We welcome our video as well as live uh, audience. We want to start this morning um, honoring our veterans. From all of us, we say thank you for your service to our country. Some of you may be active duty, Navy, Army, Marines, Air Force, Coast Guard, retired, reservists. To all of you, we owe a debt because freedom isn't free. It always comes with a price. We thank you for your sacrifices. I have an active duty, active duty son. His name is Jimmy. He is on assignment overseas. Jimmy was married about six weeks ago. He had three weeks with his beloved Margaret and then shipped out, deployed. I think of the sacrifices borne by so many families of military. Um, the spouse has to learn to be independent, self-sufficient, doing everything they used to do together. Now they do by themselves until their spouse comes back. I know many of our veterans are concerned about our country. Will we have the strength with our leadership to stand up to nations like China? Will, test, will Russia test us in our NATO alliance? Will North Korea be a threat in the near future? Will ISIS reemerge? Will the military be cut back? These are questions I hear many veterans asking. So let me encourage you to turn your concerns and your cares into prayers. You know, when you really love somebody or really love something, you're concerned about her. And our veterans, as well as many in this room, are very concerned about our country. So we will do what Christians have done over the centuries. We will pray for our leaders and for our country. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we look to you to be our source of strength and wisdom for you to guide our land. Our nation has just had a presidential election and our media has declared Mr. Biden our president-elect. Our sitting president, Mr. Trump, has filed lawsuits in several states asserting fraud. We wait to hear what the courts will say. But God in heaven, we acknowledge that you are God. You have used this country, America, to promote good and restrain evil worldwide. You have used these veterans in their military service, and now they have concerns. So many situations will require wisdom to know the right thing to say and do, the courage to do it. We pray that wisdom and courage over the leadership for our country, and we turn our cares into prayers. And we believe that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it whatever direction you so desire. May our leaders be guided by you. May they seek your counsel and be surrounded by wise and good counsel. May you have mercy on us, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 11 and following. The letter we've been studying the last few weeks is 1 Thessalonians. We're in a series entitled Rooted. One of the most important teachings in the book of Thessalonians, first and second, is the, about the second coming. We believe the second coming will have two parts. The first part, the first event, is called the rapture. The rapture could happen at any moment. Anybody here ready for a rapture? It's a signless event. God will remove his own people from this earth, just like we evacuate people out of the west when there's a fire or out of the south when there's a hurricane 
or out of a mountain area when there's a volcano. So God will suddenly, unexpectedly come and remove his people out. Now, I've been working hard to get your rapture ready. And I want to reinstitute a word that was spoken in the early church. The word is Maranatha. It means, come, Lord Jesus. You know, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That really is a prayer for Jesus to come back for us. So under your mask, would you just say that word with me? Maranatha. It means come, Lord Jesus. And I believe there's many indications he's coming maybe very soon. We are living in a time of chaos. Just think about the chaos of the election. We're living in a time of increasing lawlessness. Police officers are increasingly afraid to confront situations for fear of escalation. We look over to the Middle East and we see that there's agreements being made that guarantee Israel's safety. Israel is a very wealthy country, very sought after, and Russia is right on their doorstep. So we see that there's many signs, indications that the end may be in sight. So Paul covers the rapture, the second coming, in every chapter of that First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. And he's bringing this book to a close. And he has some very important things to say to us. He has 18 different commands between verses 22 and 28. He begins in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 by saying, encourage one another. Now, I thought in light of this last week, you might need some encouragement. So, he says, encourage one another. These verses have been an encouragement to me, and I hope they encourage you and build you up as you have been doing. You see, what God really wants to see happen is his church to bring him glory, be glorified, glorifying God by being edified. And when we are being edified, our hearts are deeply satisfied with who Christ is. He's going to speak, first of all, to the church. Then he's going to speak to the leaders. And then he'll say a word to everyone, okay? So this is living out our faith before he comes to the church family. We begin at verse number 12. It says these words. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. The first thing he calls us to do as a church is to respect our leaders. The situation in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas Timothy came into, was they were living in paganism. They brought the gospel. And Paul was run out of town with his team about three weeks later. And he sent Timothy to check up on them. And he found their faith was pretty strong. But they were lacking leaders. So what we find in books like Timothy and Titus is that leaders are to be people of good character. You know, husbands to one wife. Their children aren't wild and rebellious. They weren't greedy for money. They weren't quarrelsome or argumentative. They weren't given over to alcohol. They were people above reproach that could teach the word of God and could spot doctrinal errors and help people find the ways of God. So Paul writes in verse 12, now we ask you brothers to respect those who work hard among you. The word respect is actually the word know, which is a call for the church to get to know her leaders, 
to appreciate these gifted people around you, to value who they are and how they live and what they have to say. The elders and staff here are remarkable people. I want you to say a word about them. I have deep affection for them. You should really get to know them. Starting with Ken Fowler, who is now in his 80s. He's been married 61 years. Yeah, six decades of marriage. Ken has a lot to teach us about marriage, as would Phil and Barb. So um, I love how he takes care of his bride, Brenda. How he deeply, deeply loves her. And he's devoted his heart to discipleship. And then there's Dan Haffey, my friend for over 30 years. When I went through the darkest season of my life, Dan would show up at my house every Tuesday morning and walk with me through that. And then there's Dan Lupinetti. Dan moved his family up here in 1987. That's himself and his children. And uh, now he's an author. Dan's written several books. He's actually just completed his last book, Dan Lupinetti. And then there's John Keeler. John's on staff here. You know, we were looking at the resumes of many different people. And actually, on paper, I was looking at some people, wondering whether they were the chosen one. And then John walked in the room and began this interview process. And sort of like how David appeared before Samuel, and Samuel knew in his heart that this was the anointed one, I felt as if this was the one whom God had chosen for us. And so John moved his family over here from Baltimore. And we have now Julie and John and the kids And then there's Scott, Scott Sterick, son of missionaries, grew up in New Guinea. When we opened up our church, our children's ministry last week, I saw Scott in the room getting ready. He's in the trenches with troops. And then there's Tim Hampton. Tim is a former pastor, but still the heart of a pastor, envisioning what the church could be, deeply caring about the well-being of others. And finally, there's Amir Rashidian, who keeps us aligned, little joke, spiritually and physically, helping us to steer the ship. I deeply respect these people I get to lead with. And the amazing thing, too, is that God has given us, and then there's Bob Koss. You know, Bob has, you know, got new knees now. He's our lead guitarist, and I believe that God's going to use Bob in this season of his life to... Resume his heart for missions. You see, I I deeply respect these people I get to work with. Amazing thing about our staff is about some of these women that are on our staff. We got Brenda, right here, Brenda, who looks after our facility, planning, and missions, and knows pretty much what's going on. And you got Aaron shepherding our children's ministry, getting things running again. You have Angie working with Fletcher with the middle and high school students. The scripture says to honor those leaders in the Lord's work. God has used many of you to encourage me with notes you've written to me over the years. Why wouldn't you just take a moment to text, to write, to say a word of thanks to the people who labor so hard among you? Secondly, we are called to esteem them highly in love because of their work. To esteem someone is to put high value on them, to hold them in high regard. We esteem Aaron and her team because of their work. They're working with our precious children. 
They're ministering online every Sunday at 11 o'clock on Zoom and then live here at 9 o'clock. They're walking with children and their families through this pandemic. And gradually, families are feeling safe to re-enter. We're doing everything we can to make this a safe environment. We esteem Fletcher and Angie and their teams highly because of their work, the Lighthouse team. Connecting um, student leaders with elders, connecting students to the body, building relationships within our church, doing a series called Fulfilled. Can you imagine being a student who's an athlete in this environment not being able to play your sport? Can you imagine a student who's spending 30 hours a week online doing Zoom school? Can you imagine a student who's trying to get perspective on Black Lives Matter or upon the election, feeling the tension in the air? This is an altogether important ministry to walk with our students, discipling them through this season of their life. We esteem Brenda and her team, the missions team, for um, the outreaches that are happening. Recently, Brenda led a team down to the rescue mission to bless people at uh, Halloween time, distributing clothes and personal items. We esteem Sharon and her team for tackling big projects during COVID. You know, this major renovation to the Family Life Center happened all during the COVID season. Third, we are to live at peace with one another. You see that in the text. It says we are to live at peace with one another there in verse 13. I speak to you at a time of great social unrest and upheaval. Just 40 miles to our south in our nation's capital, there is a Black Lives Matter plaza. You will see somebody sometime in the yard with a Black Lives Matter sign. A good question to ask is, why is that important to you? Can we talk about it? Throughout the election, people were putting up Biden signs and Trump signs. And when people see those signs, they immediately make judgments about the person who put up the sign. One good question to ask is, I see your sign. Why do you feel so strongly about the election? I want you to, rather than enter into judgment of somebody, I want you to be curious, to enter into conversation, to enter into dialogue. We are called to live at peace with each other. We're not to be quarrelsome or argumentative or warlike. We're not here to start a fight. Jesus has called us into a relationship with himself. He took the initiative by making peace with God, that we could have peace with God. And so forth, we are called to be at peace with each other. Peace with God means that he's on the throne, that we are not. That he's the king, we are not. That he's in charge, and we are not. Most people see a sign and make a judgment. I see your Biden sign. I know what you're all about. You think you've got it all figured out. No, you've only seen their sign, you see. Peace is an active work of us trying to hear each other, understand each other, listen to each other, value each other, give each other space, respect each other's points of views. 
You see, primarily we're not Republicans or Democrats, conservatives or liberals, Trump fans or Biden followers. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are called to live at peace with each other. Fourth, we are to forgive offenses. You'll see that in verse 14 and 15. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Now, I've forgotten many things that happened at my wedding, but I have never forgotten something that Debbie's dad said. To forgive each other before the other person asks to be forgiven. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Our president right now, our sitting president, feels wronged. He believes that, he believes that certain states allowed people to vote who did not even live there, that there were glitches in the software, that outside observers should have been allowed in cities like Philadelphia. So lawsuits are being filed. The tendency in life when we're done wrong is to do wrong, to return insult for insult, to return snub for snub, to return evil for evil. The president can address his wrongs, his feelings of being wronged with lawsuit. But what do we do when we feel wronged? We can hold on to the offense in our heart and have nothing to do with the person. We can be heard and talk behind the person's back about them to other people. We can complain about the person to others. But what would it be like to truly let it go? What would it be like to not carry it anymore? What would it be like just to release it and to forgive? The Bible calls us to forgive one another. And fifth, it says, we are to be kind to one another. You'll find that in verse 15. Kindness is the active side of love. If we are showing respect to our leaders, esteeming them highly, working at living at peace, forgiving offenses as they come up, we are showing loving kindness. Paul writes and says, Holy, beloved of God, clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy and with kindness. Kindness. Don't you think it's time to make America kind again? And kindness begins with us. That God's been kind to us. And we need to show this kindness to one another. Kindness is a willingness to wash someone's clothes. Kindness is a willing to fill someone's tank up. You know, I noticed that Debbie's car, whenever I drive it, it's empty of gas. <laughs> and I think about this opportunity I have to fill it up, whether she likes it or not. Kindness makes someone chicken noodle soup when they're sick. Kindness takes out the trash. Kindness figures out what kind of coffee you like and brings it. Learn to be kind to one another. That's a word to the church about what Paul would say about what a healthy church begins to look like, the church. How about to leaders? Well, it says in verse 12, we are to work diligently. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you. I was walking down the hall this week with Sharon, and there's this beautiful tree procured from Tony Lascola in Costco that she tells me about. She got it at a great price. 
And then she walks me to the women's bathroom. I'd never been in the women's bathroom before. And there's this painter named Paul, and he's putting on his second coat of paint, this beautiful dark blue color. Now I know the color of the bathroom. And then there's this hallway that she and Logan painted. It says we're to work diligently, giving attention to detail, because excellence always is in the details. We respect those who work hard among us. They asked Billy Graham, they said, Billy, if, you had, if you're a brand new Christian and you had five years left to live, how would you spend those five years? And he said, I would study for four years and I would preach for one year. You see, the scripture says that the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at their preaching and teaching. Secondly, we are to oversee the spiritual health of the body. It says, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord. To be over someone is to have charge over them. This relates to what Jesus found in a conversation. When Jesus came to the city of Capernaum, there was a centurion. Now, wherever the centurions are mentioned in the scriptures, it's a positive word about them, a military officer. And he pleaded with him. He said, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed, terrible pain. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But he said, Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come to my house. Just say the word and you can heal him from where you are. My servant will be healed. And Jesus said, the man said to Jesus, I am a man under authority. I have superior officers above me and I have men underneath me. I say to one man, go, and he goes. One man, come, and he comes. One man, build this, and he builds it. One man, fight, and he fights. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus said, I tell you, in all the nation of Israel, I've not seen the faith of this man. You see, he understood authority. He understood that there were superiors above him and people beneath him. Elders and pastors have been given the authority of designing worship services, praying over you, preaching and teaching the word, guarding the flock from false teaching, guiding you in the ways of the Lord, helping you to resolve differences, overseeing the church finances, providing overall direction. But most of all, they provide an example to us of what it means to follow after the Lord. And third, we're called to admonish. It says, respect those who work hard among you, who are over in you, the Lord, who admonish you. Paul said for three years, he did not fail to admonish them with tears. So what is admonishment? You see, if I really love you, I would speak a word to you of correction when you need it, a word of affirmation when you need to hear it. It's giving verbal correction, whether individually or a group. So let's just be honest, okay? Admonishment isn't easy. Let's say someone is glued to the TV set watching the election results for five to 10 straight hours. Or let's say they've decided to wait out COVID by binge watching on Netflix. Or let's say they become a mask Nazi stressing themselves and everybody else out. 
Now, usually the person you're trying to admonish will resent your counsel. They'll say, you say, it isn't healthy for you to watch 10 straight hours of the news. And they say, I need to be informed. And you say, it's not healthy to be a mask Nazi. And they say, have you heard the latest CDC guidelines? So usually the person will resist. Sometimes they'll attack you back. That's because the person you're admonishing doesn't want to face their issues. But I love you, and I want you to live the fullest life possible. That's why I admonish you. You see, it'd be irresponsible to let a brother or sister simply go off the cliff. And this is what I see happening. I see people making huge decisions without seeking counsel. There is good, godly counsel available to you, especially in discipleship relationships. But people don't avail themselves of that counsel, and they make very unwise decisions. That's why we're called to admonish. All believers are responsible to admonish those who are living an undisciplined, disorderly life. People say, I'm afraid to say something. A husband says, if I speak that to my wife, I'll get the silent treatment for a week. A wife says, if I say that to my husband, he'll explode. A pastor says, if I speak a true word to my people, they'll leave the church. People will say, I don't want to be judgmental. The scripture even says, do not judge lest you be judged, right? But that is perhaps the most misapplied scripture in all of the scripture. Because it says later that before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, make sure you take the log out of your own eye. Deal with the major sin in your own life before you deal with the minor sin in someone else's life. Which leads me to another reason why we shy away. Who am I to correct somebody when, they, when I've got issues myself? If I talk to a brother or sister about their sin, they may bring up my issues. So we, we, we avoid bringing up a brother's sin in hopes he won't bring up my sin. Can I say a word? You don't have to be perfect before you address an issue in someone else's life. But you have to be dealing with yourself. Paul wants us to have healthy relationships with one another. And then he gets into verses 16 and following. He says this word, Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The first command is be joyful always. At all times, be joyful the second command is pray continually, pray without ceasing. And the third command is be thankful in all circumstances. Some have said that these are the impossible commands. If Paul had said be joyful sometimes, pray once in a while when you're feeling the heat, or just try to be thankful when good things happen, we could say, I'll give it a shot. Can anybody honestly say, I'm always joyful? Can anybody say they pray without ceasing? Can anybody say they give thanks in everything? 
How do we pull off these commands? John Stott, the theologian, says that these commands are directed toward not the individual, but toward the church regarding corporate worship. That when we gather, we should be celebrating by rejoicing. We should be praying at all times, and we should be giving thanks. But I wonder if it's possible to celebrate, pray, and give thanks together if we haven't been doing it individually. So I think this is a word to us. The question I'm often asked is, how do I find God's will for my life? Well, God's will is given for you right here. To be joyful always, to pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The last phrase gives us a clue on how we can begin to obey the commands. We must be in Christ Jesus. You see, the moment we believe, we come into union with Jesus. Jesus comes to live inside of us and us in him. Without being in Jesus and without the power of the Holy Spirit, we could never obey these commands. Jesus said it this way, I am the vine and you are the branches. The very life of Jesus flows into us like a vine and branches. And the fruit of his life in us is the joy of the Lord. The first step in pursuing joy is to begin now. The psalmist said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. He didn't say, yesterday was God's day. I was happy back then. He didn't say, tomorrow will be the Lord's day. I'll endure till then. He said, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. We all live with the illusion that joy will come about when the conditions change. If I'm in school, I'll be happy when I can go back to school. Or if I am single, I'll be happy when I get married. Or if I'm married, I'll be happy when the kids grow up. Or if I'm living through a pandemic, I'll be happy when we get a vaccine. Or if I'm living in election chaos, I'll be glad when this is all over. Or if I'm a Redskin fan or a Washington football team fan, I'll be happy when we win a game. Little job. This is God's day. This is the day God has redeemed. If I'm going to find joy, I'm going to have to have my mind renewed. But this raises the question, doesn't it? How can I have joy... With all the hunger and violence and injustice and chaos in the world. One of the true tests of authentic joy is its compatibility with pain. Joy in this world will always be in spite of, in spite of the election, in spite of the pandemic, in spite of the school uh, question. Joy is a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's why Paul said these words in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Just in case you didn't hear me, again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is very near. 
Be anxious about nothing, but in everything with prayers and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What was Paul dealing with? Paul was in prison. Paul had been tortured. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. Paul couldn't walk out of the prison. He couldn't get a breath of fresh air. He had to have things brought to him like food. And yet from prison, he writes the word, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And he says to the Thessalonian believers, he says to us, rejoice always. What if my car breaks down and I don't have AAA? What if my marriage falls apart? What if the election doesn't turn out like I hoped? The Bible says to rejoice in the Lord. To rejoice in a father who loves you, who's chosen you, who has good plans for your life. Rejoice in a Savior who's redeemed you. Your sins have been forgiven. He's with you right now. He has a glorious inheritance prepared for you. Rejoice in a Holy Spirit who comforts you and reminds you of the truth and the promises of God. Learn to rejoice yourself in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoicing will always be a work of the Spirit in the life of a believer as our minds become renewed and remind ourselves of how good God is. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is a confidence that my God is good, my God is in control, my God is sovereign, and my God is sufficient. You see, you'll never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And when God is all you have, Perhaps then and then alone you'll know that God is all you need. God is all you need to experience joy. If there is nothing else good in your world, you can rejoice that God is good. So church, rejoice in the Lord always. And let it begin on this very day that God has been good to his children, that God is still on the throne, that God is working out his plans in this country, and God is going to use us in this country, in this season, we pray. Pray with me. God in heaven, you speak a word to us through this letter of Thessalonians to people who were very early in their journey, were facing heavy heat. And Father, we've been living through a pandemic now for many, many months. We've seen much suffering and sickness. We've seen death. We've been living through the drama of an election and all the tension in the air. We have lived with racial tensions in our country. And God, you are calling your people into intimacy with yourself, into a closer relationship, to be able, Lord, to know who we truly are, that we are your people. We've been called by your name. 
We've been redeemed by your blood, Jesus. We've been filled with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, for an increasing measure of joy to be experienced in our life. A deep confidence that you are God, that you are in control, that you're on the throne. You're sovereign and you're sufficient. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're too wise to ever make a mistake. You're too loving to ever be cruel. So, God, you are on the throne, and we worship you this day. And we acknowledge that you are our God. Would you enable us, Lord, as a church, to show deep respect and love for our leaders, to live at peace with each other, to forgive each other from the heart, and to be kind to one another? Would you enable our leaders, Lord, to work really hard and to be willing to admonish when necessary? And for all of us, Lord, would you enable us to experience your joy? As the sun comes up, Lord, would you give joy to your people? As the problems roll in, would you enable, oh Lord, our joy to be greater than the problems we face? Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. with it in Psalm 4 and he said many are asking who can show us any good he was really in a dark place depressed sort of like Paul in prison that dark damp place who can show us any good here's the prayer let the light of your face shine upon us you have filled my heart with greater joy that when the grain and the new wine abound, the happiest moment for them was harvest. Having sowed the seed, harvested, now they had the wine to drink and the grain to eat. But he says, the joy of the Lord is greater than the harvest at harvest time. You see, there's an outward expression of joy when the harvest comes, but there's an inward expression of joy when we reflect upon the goodness of God to us. Father, I pray for the inward sense of joy for each person in this room, each person listening to this broadcast, that, God, you might do a deep work inside of us, renewing our minds, refreshing our spirits, allowing us to taste that you are good. For us, Lord, to remember your promises, for your Holy Spirit to fill us, for you, God, to Show us the depth of your love towards us. Lord, thank you that we are your people and your promise to us are true. Father, I pray we might walk this week in joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. The ushers are going to dismiss you, but if you have kids in Greenhouse, we would like one parent to head out those doors and head down the hallway to pick up your kiddos.